In his 30-year career, Tom Reader wrote for some of the best sitcoms of his generation, Barney Miller, MASH, Cheers, and Frasier, as well as my personal favorite, Night Court. His episodes are known for their quotability as well as its character explorations. It's an honor to introduce Mr. Tom Reader. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, glad to be here, Ian. Thanks for inviting me to do this. Oh, please. Pleasure is all mine. Um, first question I ask to everybody is when and where were you born? Uh, I was born in Los Angeles back before there were freeways. Okay. <laughs> uh, back in 1946. Um, but uh, I grew up in... Uh, uh, a town in, called Redlands, east of Los Angeles, by about 70 miles or so. But then back to L.A. for, uh, I went to University of Southern California and, and then, you know, stayed in town to work in TV. Did you study uh, television or writing at all at USC? Yeah, I was a telecommunications major, got my degree in that. And I had actually... Uh, Started at a uh, at a at a community college. They were called junior colleges back then because my parents couldn't afford to send me to college. And um, and my uh, freshman year, freshman English, uh, the professor asked me to stick around after class, and he said to me, uh, "You know, I've been reading some of the things that you've been submitting, and uh, you're. Uh, I feel like you have." A, real talent for writing. I think you ought to consider a career in writing. Yeah. And, I, and I said, ha, ha, ha. well, I'm going to be a sports announcer. They said, I'm telling you, you could, you could do it as a, as a writer. And I said, yeah, but I can make a lot more money as a sports announcer. And he said, you can make a lot more money running a whorehouse. <laughs> but that was sort of the first time anybody gave me any encouragement towards being a writer and I I wound up getting a scholarship to go to um, USC and and uh, my intention was still to be a sports announcer and then uh, I got a, uh, a part-time job while I was at SC I got a part-time job working as an usher at CBS and uh, being around TV production kind of changed my, uh, my career objectives. And uh, that's, that kind of started me down the path toward being a writer. Were there any TV influences, like things you watched as a kid or when you were in high school or college that you saw later on as something that pushed you towards it? I remember as a kid, um, I think it was called You Bet Your Life. The Sergeant Bilko show was something that I remember mm. watching and thinking was pretty funny. Um, and then a little later on, you know, in the 60s, there were uh, some kind of lame shows, but there were also shows like Dick Van Dyke that were terrific. And uh, um, I also, you know, some of the, the sitcoms tended to be uh, it kind of uh, tame by comparison of now. I mean, you know, the plot line for Ozzie and Harriet might be Ozzie paints a chair or something right. like that. <laughs> and then uh, by the 70s, it had changed considerably and um, people, 
especially starting with All in the Family, there were stories about things, and uh, I think the change in the subject matter kind of attracted me, too. Um, but you know what else? I think a lot of the really good comedy in the 50s and 60s was not necessarily being done in sitcoms, but on uh, variety shows, like your show of shows. Um, and, and one of the things that I had a privilege of being an usher on uh, the Carol Burnett show, oh. um, and saw Tim Conway and Harvey Con- uh, Harvey Corman and Carol, and you know every week, and uh, and Vicky Lawrence and Lana Wagner and so on. Um, and uh, I there were I got to know some of the writers around there, and uh, I don't know that was that was a big influence too toward uh, gee. Maybe I can do this. With the Smothers Brothers part of your um, ushering duties? Yeah. Yeah, the Smothers Brothers film was done in Studio 43, which at CBS Television City, which was across the hall from 33, which was where um, Carol Burnett's show was done and the Red Skelton show. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, had, I, I worked a few times on the Smothers Brothers show. Uh, and one time they even had me, uh, sort of, they, I don't know whether they hadn't hired a warm up man or something, but I wound up in humiliating myself going up there and trying to keep the audience engaged a little bit. And was, With no stand up experience. No, right. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't remember what that, what that was about, but, uh, you know, it was like, Okay, get that usher up there. Hey, go. And <laughs> had didn't have any material, you know, nothing. Just stand up there and embarrass myself. So, um, but yeah, no, I I, uh, I like working on the other side of the hall on the Carol Burnett show. That was a lot of fun. Okay, and um, how did you get to uh, the uh, Barney Miller? Or was there a show in between? Uh, yeah, I... I uh, after I got back from active duty in the army, um, I went to work at an ad agency and then I got hired after having spent some time at the ad agency, I got hired in the promo department at CBS, um, you know, doing promos for network shows. And the guy who was, who became my boss, Harry Marks eventually left and, uh, went to ABC. And a couple of months later, he invited me to follow him. And so I went to ABC. Okay, we're in the Vine Street Theater in Hollywood. And our offices were on the second floor, the ABC promo department, second floor. On the third floor were the offices of Barney Miller. And the Xerox machine happened to be on the second floor. And I around the Xerox machine and... Half of your listeners will have no idea what a Xerox machine is. But um, I got to meet a woman named Anne Moreno, who was a publicist for Barney Miller, and she was always down there making copies of something. And so I got to talking to her one day and said, are they, you know, any chance they're looking for material? She said, they're always looking for stuff. And she said, if you've got something, I'll take it up. And I said, wow, that'd be great. And so I had, I wrote a spec Barney Miller, she took it up, and 
the next day, I think it was the next day, I got a phone call from a guy named Chris Hayward, who was number two in command on Barney Miller at that time. And he said, can you come up? And I said, sure. And I went in and he handed, stood in front of his desk. He handed me back my script. And there was a little note on a scrap of paper, paper clip to the cover of my script. And it started in with all these critical lagging themes and you know, all this kind of stuff. Right. And I thought, what kind of a sick guy would call me up here to embarrass me personally? Why not just... And I get to the end, and it says, and now for the good news. Mm-hmm. And I started, you know, I turned it over. There was nothing on the back. I started flipping through the pages, nothing in there. I looked at him, and he was grinning, and he said, sit down. And so I sat down, and he said, um, we don't want to buy this script, but we think you can write for this show. So we want to give you an assignment. You need to start thinking of some story ideas, and when you've got some stuff, give us a call, and we'll get together, and we'll, you know, see what we can work out. Yoo-hoo! And so I went back downstairs to my office. My wife was very pregnant. I called, and I said, if this doesn't put you into labor, nothing will. Mm-hmm. I just got an assignment and all that. Sure enough, that night... We were on our way to the hospital at like 10.30 that night. And the whole way she's saying, I'm so sorry to steal your limelight. Like, I'm just like, come on, stop it. And, and our son was born that night. And then uh, and that was, a, that was a Friday night. And I went into work on Monday, or maybe I had one day off and went in on Tuesday. And I ran into Chris Hayward in the parking lot. I said, hey, I just wanted to tell you, I... Our, my wife had a baby over the weekend with a son, and he said, oh, God, I hope you didn't name him Barney. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was the start. So uh, so I wrote uh, four scripts for them that season, and kind of off and running. Was uh, The first one was Discovery? That's correct, yeah. And, and that one, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, no, and I was going to ask you how you came up with that idea. Well, what, uh, one of the, uh, my idea, that one of the ideas that they responded to was uh, that the character Fish, played by Ava Goda, uh, had his, his, cha- his paycheck is missing. They, they, there's a, been a clerical error somewhere, and he's listed as dead. <laughs> so he's now having to try to get himself back to life. Um, and they liked that idea. And that wound up being kind of a B story, what we used to call a B story. There was the main story and then the B story was a secondary one. And uh, the main story was one that Danny Arnold and, and Chris had come up with, which was um, a guy who has come to the realization that he's gay and is going to commit suicide in Washington Square. And they intervene and, and all that. And it was... I mean, this was 1975, right. and uh, it was, I mean, I look back on it now, and some of it makes me wince, because we've made a lot of progress since then, but, um, you know, the one of the characters was very effeminate and stuff like that, that I, that I look at now and kind of cringe, but... Um, was Marty in that one? Yeah, it was Marty and, and his friend Daryl, uh... Um, Ray Stewart is the actor. Ray Stewart, 
Stewart, yeah, who later wound up in AES Hudson Street. But anyway, um, mm-hmm. and then there was a third guy, and I forget what that character's name was, and he was the guy who was going to commit suicide. Anyway, at in those times, and here was my first script, ABC was going to yank it. They were worried about about airing that episode, or at least some of the executives were. So there was some talk about not even getting it on the air. And and Danny deployed, I forget what, the, there was some group in, in L.A. and Hollywood. It might have been something like the Gay Media Task Force or something along those lines. And he got their backing and they contacted ABC and kind of pushed back a little bit. And so that show got on the air. Um, so but, yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> you know, I started out with a kind of a little bit of a controversial show, but, uh, I didn't, I don't remember us, you know, it aired and I don't remember us getting a lot of hate mail. I think it seemed to have been reasonably well received. It's funny what you were talking about when um, your son was born. I had a cousin named Barney Miller. No. Yeah. <laughs> How'd that work out? Uh, and after the show was on? Or? Oh, yeah. He was he was an old man. I guess he's not alive, but I guess if he was alive, he'd be 90. Oh, so wow. I guess the first 45 years were pretty good. <laughs> and then after that, yeah. Barney Miller. Yeah. So he got a lot of that. It's a popular Jewish name. Yeah, I think the the in some episode there was uh, it came out that Barney's real name was Bernard, but uh, but it, you know everybody always called him Barney. And another episode you worked on uh, with Danny Arnold was called Protection. Yeah, boy. Um, there, and and by the way, you say with Danny Arnold, we we. You know, it was pretty collaborative around there in those days. There were, um, there were, Danny was a very colorful guy, very, very funny, good, especially early on. Uh, you know, he could sit in the room and, and pitch out all the characters and, and uh, very creative. Um, but because there had been a um, the Barney Miller started out as a a, a a kind of a blend of two different ideas, and the other one was by a guy named Theodore Flicker, and that's why you'll see created by Danny Arnold and Theodore J. Flicker, but. Um, Theodore J. Flicker wound up having nothing right. to do with the actual production of the show. And so as a consequence, every episode that I ever wrote, and I think every episode any other uh, freelancer wrote, and even some of the staff writers, Danny took the very unusual step of submitting to to the Writers Guild for con- um arbitration so okay. you essentially had to win your credits on the show every time which that never happens i mean rarely happens on on other 
other shows, there were there were certainly on Cheers, there was a collaborative process of a lot of input from other writers, but but you know, it was assumed that if you if you were conscientious and, you know, put in your best effort and some of your stuff was still left standing by the end, that it would your name would be on it. Um and uh that wasn't the way it worked with Danny. And uh, there was even one script that uh I wrote that he won the arbitration and my name was was gone from it. But anyway, uh that's I, I honestly I don't remember very much about protection other than it, I think it had something to do with paying protection money, right? That- yeah. I- I, I got the I got the privilege to watch all the Barney Miller episodes again because I'm doing research. Oh wow! So it's a good you know. <laughs> yeah, and then Sniper, which is a episode where Inspector Luga, Barney, yeah, my one of my favorite character, my favorite character on the show, is in yeah. there. And then Block yeah. Party, which was a Wentworth and Chano episode. Yeah, yeah, um, and. Uh, Janice, shoot, what was that actress's name? Linda, uh, Linda Lavin? Janice, Linda Lavin, yeah. Janice Wentworth was her character. And uh, she was in several episodes, I think. And in fact, um, as you probably are aware, since you've done this research, there were a lot of um, actors who made multiple appearances on the show. I think Don Calfo was in... I don't know, six or seven, and not necessarily as the same character. They, um, Danny had kind of the, um, you know, what would you call it? A stock company. Yeah. Uh, and to his credit, by the way, some of the actors um, that he used a lot, or not a lot, but sometimes, were um, actors who had been blacklisted in the 50s. And, and he was very sympathetic to that and, you know, was trying to hire people back who, if you will, who had not been able to work during, during that period of time. Jack Guilford? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, uh, Ray, I mean, he wasn't blacklisted because he wasn't alive yet, but Ray Sharkey was used a lot. Yeah, um, uh, David Clennon was a guy who wound up in a, in Park Place, in a, uh, and he had he had been uh, in I want to say four or five episodes of Barney Miller. Um, so yeah, there were there were people, and and quite a few of those people wound up in uh, episodes of Night Court later on because. Reinhold Lee, you know, he and he and I met on uh, Barney Miller, and um, in fact, um, Danny and Chris Hayward, when I started, were sort of the two adults in the room, and then there were two, he had a staff of two writers, one was Tony Sheehan, whose only job prior to that, I think, had been working in the, in the cafeteria at the uh, UCLA <laughs> and and uh, and Reinhold Lee, who had just moved out from Chicago, where I think he had worked on a a weekly newspaper or something like that. 
And to be blunt about it, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that the three of us didn't know any better, um, that it was the first show that any of us had worked on. And, and the working conditions were uh, not ideal. I mean, there were lots of changes made and lots of uh, <laughs> sort of drama and, and late nights and all that stuff. Um, in fact, after that first season, the, the episodes that you've been talking about, um, they offered me a, a staff deal and my agent turned it down because he thought, man, these are not good working conditions. He turned it down and, and counter offer or requested or whatever the term would be for me to be, um, given a, uh, what was called a multiple deal, um, a, a guarantee of X number of scripts. And I think the guarantee was four and he took it. And then he called me and said, they offered you, <laughs> you know, but I turned it down and what? So I didn't even, he, he knew not to let me even have the chance to say, sure, I'll take it. Um, as far as the staff deal. So my arrangement was always with, um, with Barney was always um, technically a freelancer, although I was around there a lot. Um, but most of the time, I didn't have to be there till two in the morning. Yeah, I was going to ask you, the first season they tried to film it in front of a live studio audience. That didn't work out. Yeah, it was... Um, a part of the problem was that it was... Uh, the scripts frequently weren't done when they went to the stage and they were in the process of being written all week long, which is just, I can't imagine what it was like for the actors. And we kind of <laughs> avoided being seen by the actors because if you were out just wandering around, I think they thought, why aren't you at your typewriter? You know? <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, there was, the one time when somebody stopped by my office, I, it must have been that first season because I still have that office at ABC. And um, they said, hey, you want to go to Lunch Reader? And I said, I can't. And I pointed at my typewriter and I said, this script is on the stage. <laughs> I was I was doing some punch up on but I guess Danny had said, this isn't working, fix this. You know, and um, there were t <laughs> one time I remember going in to pitch uh, stories to Danny while he was getting his hair cut. He was, <laughs> he had a barber come into his office and he had the, you know, the cape on and all that stuff. So there were all these distractions going on and I'm sitting there saying, Hey, what about one where, you know, whatever. Um, so there was a, you know, it was kind of chaotic and uh, the, uh, there were, there were also, you know, it, it, with the studio audience, I think it seems to me the first season, pretty sure the first season was done at um, ABC Prospect, uh, or they may call it ABC Television Center or something like that, but it's over in a residential area in uh, Hollywood. And... Um, and then the, after that, they moved into the Vine Street Theater downstairs. So it was uh, 
the show was being taped in the same area where the gong show and the mm. dating game were. <laughs> in fact, Chuck Barris had an office down the hall from mine. If you know who that was. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Was he doing CIA work when in his office? Uh, yeah. I guess so. He was probably keeping an eye on me. Uh, but uh, now he had a drum kit in his office, so imagine That's trying great. to concentrate and some guys pounding on his drums. Anyway, so in your in the second season that you're you know a working television writer, you worked, you did uh, three Barney Millers, two Fish episodes, an episode of Doc. But, yeah, but your fam- most famous Barney Miller episode that year was Hash. Correct, and it's probably the most famous episode of the show. Yeah, I think I think so. It, it made a list uh, years ago. I think TV Guide, you know, the hundred best episodes of all time, or something like that. And I'm sure by now it's probably been displaced, but that was kind of a, uh, a nice uh, honor. And that I I think Liney might have come up with the original idea and. The, um, the first, my first draft was actually called Pot, mm-hmm. but then somebody, uh, one of the, one of the guys said, you know, instead of marijuana, maybe we should change it to hashish because it works faster. And just in terms of, you know, elapsed time in the in the episode, we needed we needed it to kick in faster. Right. So that's why that's why it became. Uh, but yeah, there were um, some uh, memorable moments in that, and uh, mushy mushy. Jack Sue, yeah, yeah, he and and the, the song at the end of the first act was um, and from the way that I feel when that bell starts to peel, well, it's almost like being in love. Um, was from Brigadoon. And when I was in high school, I had been in a, a summer production of Brigadoon, and that's how I remembered that song and, you know, plugged it into the script. And, of course, they, the show probably had to pay rights. I'd be interested to know how much they paid for that particular joke, but it worked. <laughs> yeah, somebody said they should have, you should have uh, had him sing a song from the Flower Drum song. Yeah, he was he was very good in that, and a lot of people don't know, by the way, that Hal Lindemann had a big career, nice career on on Broadway before mm. before getting into TV. Um, but yeah, no, uh, Hash was was certainly very satisfying, and it was also very satisfying to win the credit arbitration mm-hmm. uh, and get my name on it all by myself. And so you didn't have that much contact with the cast. Well, not a lot. Um, uh, like I say, for one thing, I was a freelancer, so mostly I was just, you know, hiding out. Um, and that was that was really the other factor is that uh, um, because pages it was literally just going down pages at a time, and um, um, sometimes like. There was one atomic bomb I wrote on, and uh, it was it was based on a. Uh, I had seen a thing in the newspaper about some kid who um, 
had written a, a paper of, of, it's like for high school or college, where he was hypothetically uh, figuring out how to make an atomic bomb. Right. And, and it proved to be uncomfortably close to real. And uh, so I thought, oh, this might make a good plot line. But it required um, Steve Landisberg, who played uh, Officer Dietrich, to have to memorize a whole lot of really detailed stuff about nuclear fission and all that stuff. Because Steve was the, I mean, Dietrich was the character who knew everything about everything. Right. Uh, Poor Steve had to memorize it. a lot more challenging than just being Officer Levitt and saying, here's your mail, Barney. Yeah, it was a very expansive bunch of dialogue. Steve had been in an episode or two prior to that um, where uh, before before he became Officer Dietrich. Uh, right. I forget which ones they were, but yeah, again, that, that sort of stock company, you know, and the two episodes you wrote for Fish, um, why do you think that show wasn't as successful? Uh, I don't think it was very good. Um, it, it, uh, I, I also took a pass through the pilot, uh, and then I wrote two of the first five. I, um, Abe Vigoda, the premise for those who don't know, um, was that um, Abe, uh, that uh, Fish and his wife, Bernice, were sort of foster parents. I think there was a program in New York at the time called PINS, P-I-N-S, Persons in Need of Supervision. And um, so they had a, a house full of, of kids, four or five kids, that they were um, um, the, the, fostering. the foster parents. Yeah, and I just don't think the the it didn't lend itself to like Cheers or Barney Miller or Night Court, where you've got people um, of the same relative age group, and their stories can overlap, and you get romances going and stuff like that. I think it seems to me, and I like I say after the fifth episode I was no longer involved but um, it just it just seemed like a hard show to come up with ideas for and I think there was also a little um, um, friction between Florence Stanley and, and Abe um, I remember <laughs> one night uh, Abe, Abe was certainly good uh, as as Fish and was a very popular character, but his he he was not um, he was not a a polished professional. And there was one night when he and the show was done in front of a studio audience, and he walked in, and the audience applauded. I mean, it was an early entrance in the episode, and he walks in the front door. Hi, everybody, I'm home, or whatever. And the audience starts applauding. And normally, you, anybody would just sort of hold for the applause. And then once the applause dies down, continue on. Right. He walked in, 
said his line, they applauded. He broke character, turned to the audience and went, ta-da! <laughs> and Florence Stanley was so perturbed by that, she turned and walked off the stage. Cut! So they kind of, the producers had to have a go have a conversation with Florence and get her to, um, you know, calm down a little bit. But I don't know that that's, that that was a major factor because on pretty much every show there are, right. you know, little things where cast members are, you know, in love with each other. But uh, I think there were a lot of little factors like that. And the show lasted uh, two seasons, I think. I think um, it was too many kids, in my opinion. And uh, Fish was just... Doing you know, doing the job on Barney Miller, it's hysterical, but just coming home and being in his life, it's just not as funny. Yeah, because he he didn't have um, the the other characters on Barney that he interacted with. Um, that that interaction on Barney was was very effective and and apparently very much. Um, like what it was like to be not a cop on a beat, but a, a you know a policeman in New York City. We we actually had a, a New York City cop, Lieutenant Glansman, who was sort of our tech advisor. And if we had questions, we could call Lieutenant Glansman and say, "Hey, how would you guys handle this?" That kind of stuff. But over the years, we heard back from from cops. Uh, this is the most realistic depiction of what it's like to be a, a policeman. That's what I heard from my friend whose father was a police officer. I said, what television show was most like uh, your job? And he's like, Barney Miller, you're mostly doing paperwork. Yeah, yeah. One other thing about Hesh, it was the first time that Ron Carey was trying to get moved up from a patrolman to a detective. about that. Ron Carey was a good guy, by the way. He was a, he was a nice, nice addition to the cast. He, uh, I, don't think, I don't think he was in the first season. I'm not positive about that, but, uh, you know, he, he didn't have a, a great deal to do, but, uh, uh, yeah, he, he, he was, <laughs> he was pretty much Barney's only ally in that when everybody in that episode where right. everybody else had been sampling the brownies. But you started like a hook that went for the next five years too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So in the next season you did four episodes, including the atomic bomb episode and the eviction episode where the uh, people didn't want to get out of their um, motel. But you did an episode of a show called AES Hudson Street, and you told me you had a really good story about Roland Kibbe. Oh, yeah. Um, Roland Kibbe had worked with Danny Arnold and Norman Lear on a, on a variety show in the 50s called the Tennessee Ernie, Ernie Ford Show. Tennessee Ernie Ford Show. Um, and so they had all worked together as writers. And uh, uh, Chris Hayward had moved on. Um, and Danny had hired Roland Kibbe, um, and, and, uh, 
Abe was a showrunner on AES Hudson Street, which was in a way kind of a spinoff. It was Greg Sierra, who had played Chano on Barney Miller, mm-hmm. is the head guy at uh, this um, medical, AES stood for Adult Emergency Services. It was a supposedly a medical clinic in uh, downtown Manhattan. And uh, so Kibbe was the boss. I was sort of second in command, and the only other person on the writing staff was a guy named Bob Kaliri, who um, had put in 20-plus years on Captain Kangaroo in New York, and then it moved out here, and this was the very first show he worked on. So Kibbe and Danny Arnold had this history, and there was they got along fine most of the time, but there was a... I, I There were aggravations that were mounting up with Kibby and uh, he finally had reached the point where he, he had it and Bob Galeri and I were sitting in a room working on a story or something and Kibby walked in and said, fellas, could I ask you a favor? And we said, sure, what do you need? He said, would you help me carry my stuff down to the car? <laughs> we went, what? What? He said, yes, this is, uh, I am, this is my last day. And so... <laughs> Kid, wait. Um, yes, no, I've got it all boxed up. Here we go. Come on. And he, you know, we made perfunctory protests, but he was having none of it. Um, so we, and I said, does Danny know? And he was saying, Danny wouldn't care and stuff like that. So, <laughs> so we walked Kibby's stuff down, loaded into his car. He waved and drove off. And I said to Bob, oh, crap, now we have to go tell Danny. And we did. We went back to tell Danny that Kibby had just quit. And he laced into us. You guys just let him go? What are you thinking? You know, it was that kind of, he was really annoyed with us, like it had been, like we had tried to talk him into it or something. Um, So now it was just the two of us for the remainder of that season. Fortunately, (laughs) <laughs> that season was a total of five episodes. Um, and, and you wrote the last one. Huh? Uh, apparently you wrote the last one, Diagnosis Dead, Prognosis Good. Yeah, the title actually, I know IMDB has it listed that way, but what it said on the script was Diagnosis Dead, Prognosis Improvement. And it was basically a guy had a heart attack and a and one of the characters had to go out and tell the wife that the guy had died. Well, we see, we, the audience, see the wife on the phone talking to her boyfriend, whatever, let's say his name was Gene. Gene, I can't come over right now. I'm at the hospital and, you know, that kind of stuff. So she's, she was cheating on her husband who has just had this heart attack. So this guy comes out and has to has to break the news to her that uh, her husband has has died, and uh, uh, she's not. <laughs> I think you know it's like you see uh, he's um, medically uh, what we call deceased, yeah. and she's not too. Terribly, she's trying to have a fake being upset about it. Meanwhile, 
that announcement that the guy died is a little premature because back in the in the, one of the rooms, they've taken heroic measures and managed to get a high heartbeat back, and they're fighting to bring this guy back to life. And so the uh, character, I think, I think his name was Mackler, Doctor Mackler, comes back in, and suddenly the guy's alive. So now he's got to go back out and tell tell them the briefly a widow that nope, uh, your husband's alive after all. That was the general idea. And then she burst into tears. Uh, and then she had to. She was indignant and kind of chewing him out for uh, uh, you know incompetence. <laughs> Okay, and then the next year you worked on three episodes of MASH. Yeah, that was really a good time. In, in the middle of all of that, um, what you just described in, in that season, I had gone in to pitch uh, to MASH, and and they hadn't, you know, they hadn't bit on, bitten on any of those ideas, but in the, in the season, in 1978, um, a couple of guys who had been in the room and heard me pitch were Ken Levine and David Isaacs, who were a writing team. Mm. And they, you know, got a little bit of a promotion. And somehow I got invited back to write. And I wrote three episodes uh, that season on MASH. And um, that was a very uh, satisfying experience from a, a writing standpoint. Um I think also that year I may have also written a uh, uh, another Barney Miller, but um, it was the it was a very different um, the, the style of humor was very different in, in Mash. Um, there were you know kind of a lot of what do you call it badinage the the kind of wisecracks and rat-a-tat, you know, humor, um, what you might call medium jokes, which is not to say that there weren't some big jokes along the way. But sometimes on Barney Miller, there'd be half a page of dialogue to set up a great joke. Right. You know, so just rhythmically, it was different. You know, the creation of it was different. So... It was kind of a nice experience for me to try my hand at something that was was uh, very different. And those were good episodes. I mean, I really liked Out of Gas when they have to, one group is switching something with another group to get something that the other they need to trade for something else that for they for what they need. I'm sure yeah, that's what. That, yeah, sorry. That Out of Gas episode was. Uh, I mentioned that on, on Barney Miller, there was a uh, technical advisor on MASH. They had a technical advisor who was a doctor named uh, Walter Deschel, who had a, a practice in the San Fernando Valley. And if we had questions, we could call him. Well, he was practicing medicine in the 70s, and we were writing for what was going on in the 50s. So we'd call him, and I remember calling him on this one because it had to do with they had they were running out of sodium pentothal, right? And we're going to wind up having to use ether. So I called him to talk about what would be what's the 
bad, you know, what's the difference between the two and how would the, you know, how would it impact how you uh, took care of your patients? And, uh, you know, he was very helpful with uh, that kind of stuff. And I think, as I recall, what it was was uh, Charles Winchester, who played by uh, David Ogdensteyers, who had been a character on Doc. Um, he he uh, had some expensive wine that he'd gotten through black market somehow, and and he had to swap that out to get sodium pentothal to treat prisoners or something. Right. I mean, not not prisoners to treat patients. Sorry. Yeah. Right. And in preventative medicine, uh, Hawkeye wants to take out the appendix of a guy who's going to lead his troop into certain death the next day. Yeah, and that had a there was that was a, a storyline that that those guys had come up with, and somewhere in the middle of it all, um, I think they realized, oh crap, they did that episode in season three or I don't know <laughs> something similar. But the way I wrote it, um, Hawkeye and and um, BJ uh, BJ were yes, thank you. Uh, That's the, Mash is the least of my knowledge. <laughs> That's uh, Mike Farrell's character. Right. They um, were doing it. You know, they were. Uh, co-conspirators, so to speak. And during the week, my understanding from Ken and David was that Mike Farrell spoke up and said, wait a minute, I would, a doctor would object to doing this. This is very questionable practice. And those guys rewrote that scene towards the end where DJ and Hawkeye have a, uh, a conflict over, you know, the right. sort of Hippocratic oath and all that stuff. And uh, I think it made it a much stronger episode. And I wish I could take credit for it. But, uh, but I, you know, it was, it was after I had turned in my last, last draft. Okay. Well, I was going to tell you that I really liked that scene, but. <laughs> yeah, I liked it too. I thought it, it you know, it, made it much more about something than, than just these two wacky, wacky guys. Um, but, you know, one of the things on MASH was there was a whole lot of uh, material that they had, had accumulated by interviewing people who had been in, in mobile army surgical hospitals during uh, the Korean War. And they, they were able to glean a lot of story material from that. And there was one that, that, to my knowledge, they never used, but I always thought, man, this would be a great episode. There's some guy who was a, who was the commanding officer of that unit, and he didn't have very high regard for anybody else's medical skills, and he developed appendicitis and wanted to perform his own appendectomy and was ordering them how to set up mirrors and stuff so he could see it, and they um, patiently did all of that stuff and then when it came time for the guy to make the cut they just held him down and put you know sodium pentothal in him and knocked him out and they performed the operation on him I thought god that'd be a great episode but uh, they never did it hmm. to my knowledge anyway 
the next season you um worked on Benson. Yeah, that was a a very long year, and in fact, I was I was supposed to be doing more episodes of Mash that, that this year that we're up to now, and uh, um, I got this offer to be the producer on Benson, and um, and I took it, and I learned among other things that year that I really didn't want to be a producer ever again, but um, <laughs> it was it was. Uh, it was overwhelming from the standpoint that it was me and one other guy that was in the writing room. And, um, we, I didn't see my family for, you know, days at a time. And, uh, it was, it was unusual. What had happened is, um, Benson was a spinoff from soap. Right. And, and soap was, uh, plotted out, um, and Susan Harris, by the way, a terrific writer, but they would, they would on a, on a dry erase board map out, okay, there's going to be this scene and there's this scene and there's this scene, but they didn't, you didn't have to tell a complete story in, in any given episode. It was all advancing storylines that were advancing across the season. Right. So they were able to do it with very few writers. Well, you when you have to write 24 episodes that have a beginning, a middle, and an end, it's a lot more challenging in terms of breaking story and and writing story. And I hired Bob Kaliri, uh, to who I had worked with on AES Hudson Street, to come and join me. And he and I were basically it. We had, uh, briefly, we had um, another writer and I didn't think much of him, and so they let him go. And then I brought in somebody, and, and the bosses, uh, the guys who owned the company, Paul Witt and Tony Thomas, were not too thrilled with that guy, and so he was let go. So for the for the majority of the year, it was it was uh, Bob and I were doing it. So we were working seven days a week, and it was. When uh, when the show got picked up, I I said to Paul and Tony, I'm sorry, I I just I can't do it. I can't do another season. And they were really cool about it. And and I I worked for them again later on and on other stuff. But uh, but that that year just uh, was was a tough year. Yeah, and then that season, if you watch that season, it's totally different than the other seasons because it's different characters, and it, it looks like it was shot a little differently. So it, it looks uh, very different than the other seasons. Than the subsequent seasons on Benson? Yeah. Okay, well, to be honest with you, I don't think I ever watched another one after the one I was on, maybe once or twice. But years later, I ran into Robert Guillaume on um, um, the set of Frasier. He, his nephew or somebody was was in an episode, and I was working at Frasier. And uh, so I went over and reintroduced myself. And after you know twenty, almost five years, and uh, and we had a very nice conversation. And he said some very complimentary things about how the show changed after I left and 
think of subsequent seasons, but he, it was nice to hear how, how much he appreciated what I had done, you know, in that, in that first year. Okay. And the, that season and the next season, you wrote an episode, one episode each for two short lived series. You wrote an episode for a show called Phil and Mickey. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, yeah. That, what was that about? Yeah, that was, uh, I actually wrote a version of a pilot on that, or it did a, a pretty extensive rewrite of, of a guy, a pilot written by somebody else. And it was about two athletes. Um, Phil was short for Phyllis, and it was a, a female athlete played by uh, Murphy Cross. And Mickey was a Russian guy uh, uh, played by Rick Lohman. And, and uh, his, his real name, yeah, I mean, the character's real name was Mikhail, but he called himself Mickey. And it was this sort of romance, the cross-cultural romance between these two athletes who met at a at an international track meet or something. I forget what their events supposedly were, but they were, you know, one of them was a sprinter and the other one was a herder or something like that. I, I don't, but it was, again, one of those, where's it go? You know, when you start trying to think of stories, right. um, it seemed like uh, it pooped out. But, but yeah, it went into production, um, while I was working on Benson, so I I didn't have anything more to to do with it after. I think that's right. Um, I was working on something else. Yeah, and the main problem was there was no Olympics that year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and was that what it was supposedly? It was supposed it, to be during the Olympics. Yeah, May twenty sixth, nineteen eighty. I have is the date for your episode, and. Oh. That was supposed to be right before the Summer Olympics, which yeah, we which didn't go the to. United States didn't, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't know what they did, uh, whether they uh, changed out, changed it, you know, rewrote it to be the, you know, some other international event. But yes, there wasn't a lot of uh, kissing and hugging going on between the Russians and the Americans that year. That's there's a book, uh, One Season Wonders, and it talks about one season comedies, and that's what they blame for the failure of that series. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. AES Hudson Street's one of those shows that when I go to the Paley, I live in New York. When, when if you couldn't tell from my voice, uh, when I go to the Paley Center, I always try to find an episode. Can't find it. So. Yeah, I I can't imagine that uh, that it exists. I, I uh, still had a script that I pulled down off a shelf to see what was that one about again. But I don't think you're going to, uh, you know, you aren't missing out, I don't think, by not being able to see that. Yeah, but things pop up on uh, YouTube. There's like the first seven minutes of Phil and Mickey are on YouTube. No kidding. Wow. Huh. And, and by the way, is the Paley Center, is that... Right across the street from Kaufman Astoria Studios. No, that's the Museum of the Moving Image, which is now the Jim oh, Henson Jim Henson Museum. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. It works. It works out for me because I have an eight-year-old, and the Paley Museum is right across the street from the American Girl doll store. Oh. <laughs> so my wife goes in there, and I can go in the Paley Center. There you go. That sounds good. Yeah, that's kind of Times Squareish, right? 
Uh, 50 Rock. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I worked uh, at the Kaufman Astoria Studios much later on, and maybe you're still planning to get there, but uh, on uh, Cosby. And my first day on the job there, uh, I walked I walked onto Sesame Street, onto the set, and I thought, huh? Oh, and I never found my way back there. <laughs> anyway, that's I'm way off topic. I was actually in the audience for that Cosby show. For you? Yeah. Not any of the ones. You, it was the first season. First season. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that was uh, that was an interesting uh, experience too. But uh, what uh, what else would you rather talk about? <laughs> okay. I want to talk about. I know it's great. Park Place, because I actually researched the episode that you wrote, Benign Neglect, by a girl named Universe Kessler. Who wants to be yeah. emancipated from her parents? That's right. Yeah, and I, as I recall, there was a line in there when the the parents got called and and walked in, and the, the mother walks in and says something like, um, "We're here for universe." And the guy at the desk, dead Dan, says, "Last name?" <laughs> like there, are, you know, a whole bunch of people named Universe, but. Um, yeah, the, the title, Benign Neglect, was based on um, one of Richard Nixon's advisors in the 60s uh, coined that term having to do with race relations in the United States to basically, you know, let nature take its course, just sort of ignore things. And that was, these parents were raising their child to, with no guidance, no, you know, let her decide what she wants to do, and um, and the and the girl was, and I and I think, and you as a parent can probably relate. Kids do want some kind of boundaries, some kind of guidance and structure. Yeah, structure is a good word for it. Yeah, um, so um, that's essentially what that was out, what that one was about, and I think there was also. I mentioned earlier Don Kalfa, who had been on a bunch of episodes of uh, Barney Miller, was um, in the cast of Park Place, and he played an attorney named Howie. Park Place, by the way, was a sort of, um, again, like um, a, a, legal, a legal aid center, is I guess what you'd call it. Right. Um, and... Um, and Kalfa went to his his character went to trial right after having wisdom teeth removed, and he was trying to talk to a judge who was full of uh, uh, Novocaine or whatever. And uh, it was uh, I remember that as being pretty funny. Um, but again, that was a very long time ago. By the way, a, a little piece of trivia that. That was the very first episode that Jeff Melman directed. Jeff oh, wow. on Barney Miller and had been a, I think he'd been a production assistant and then a stage manager or something like that. And Reine, Reinhold Wiggy, um, wanted to let Jeff have a directing assignment. And uh, the network was resistant to that because, you know, it was a brand new show and all that. 
and Ryan held fast, and and Jeff got to direct. And as you undoubtedly know, you recognize the name. He's Seinfeld. On, yeah, a ton of stuff. All kinds of. I mean, uh, Laverne and Shirley, I think, and and uh, in many years of six six seasons of Night Court. Um, yeah. Uh, Jeff has worked on a whole lot of stuff, but also in the cast of Park Place was uh, a guy named Jamie Widows. It might have been James Widows in the credits. But From Animal House. Yeah, yeah. Animal House. And he and a guy named Jonathan Axelrod formed a production company. And they were the, they had um, a show called Dave's World which was uh, Harry Anderson after Night Court uh, did, did that show. And, um, but Jamie went on to be a, a profuse director. I mean, he works, he has directed a bunch of stuff. Mm. And uh, so, so a directing career started for Jeff Melman and a director to be was also in cast of uh, Park Place. Yeah, uh, I remember Harry Anderson, who's one of my favorite uh, all-time performers, was on Letterman about the time that Dave's World was going to start, and Letterman said, you just did nine years of Night Court, why do you want to start with a new sitcom? And he goes, a guy came up to me and said, do you remember me from Animal House? I have a show for you. And, I mean, I'm sure he was a bit joking, but that's what that's what he said the pitch was. Jamie, huh? Yeah, I'll be done. Yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised. I'm sure had Dave Barry had a lot to do with it, though. Oh yeah, yeah, and I I enjoyed working on that on on Dave's World because I had been a big Dave Barry fan, and uh, I had read enough of his stuff that I I I found his voice pretty easy to adapt to, and also I all those years of writing for Harry's voice on. I knew his rhythms pretty well from from Night Court, you know. Mm. I, I watched both shows because I'm, you know, I watched Night Court obviously, but I would definitely watch Dave's World because it's Harry Anderson. Yeah. And uh, then uh, you wrote one episode of Barney Miller in the eighty one eighty two season called Possession, which was great because you brought back. Mr. Kopechny, the guy who thought he was a werewolf, and now he, he thought he was possessed by the devil. Yeah, and I think I, my recollection is that maybe um, that that episode, I think I shared a credit with Kibby. Roland Kibby was back in, in Danny's Good Graces by then and had been hired back onto Barney Miller. Um, and it seems to me it was the the possession thing had originally been it was going to be a Halloween episode or something like that, and it got shelved for a while, for a couple of years maybe, and then got brought back off the shelf and kind of reworked so it wasn't a Halloween episode at all. It was you know about a guy who thought he was possessed. Right, and then you started working on Cheers the next year. Yeah, yeah, and that was, I think, I, I wrote the third one on the air. Yeah, the Tortelli uh, Tort. Yeah, and and by the way, I have to say that uh, 
in those days, we didn't know that anybody other than the cast and the crew would know the episode titles. Right. So <laughs> there are some really lame episode titles over the years. Right, unless you're working on a Quinn Martin production. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I got a, uh, at the time, I got a very nice review for that episode, but the, but the I think it was in the Hollywood Reporter or something, but the, the guy said, what an awful title it was, and I thought, <laughs> why does it, nobody even knows what the title is, come on, but, you know, now with, with um, you know, IMDB, Wikipedia, yeah, everybody knows what the titles are. If I had known that was going to happen, I probably would have called it something else. But, mm. uh, yeah. So then you did an episode of Cheers the next year, but then you basically, from the second episode, after the pilot, worked on Night Court. Yeah. Uh, I had... Les, Les Charles, Glenn and Les Charles, of course, were the creators of Cheers, along with Jenny Burroughs. And uh, uh, I had, he had asked me to, you know, write for them. And so I kind of made a commitment to try to write at least one a year. And, um, but then, you know, Riney got, got night court going. And so I, I split time. I, I wrote the Cheers episode, but then was mostly working on night court that that first season um and uh, they the, the first season supposedly i mean according to uh what you read on imdb it says that we did the uh did night court at uh uh stage nine at warner brothers but the first season was actually done at abc uh what we used to call abc prospect i think they call it abc television center. It's the same place where I worked on Benson. And I was given a tiny office. I mean, it was about six feet square. There was barely room for a desk and a wastebasket. And Riley had a pretty nice office down the hall. So one day I, I went to the customer and I got him to put up a, a, a rod and bring a bunch of wardrobe down, which I hung just inside the door uh, so that my desk was behind it, and uh, I sent somebody to get Riney. To I made up some excuse about, you know, tell him that I'm having a meltdown or something, or whatever. And I closed the door so that Riney came down the hall, opened the door to my office, and all he could see was just clothes hanging there. I was behind that. <laughs> uh, anyway, that. Uh, the, that first year, um, he and I were pretty much it for the first few episodes, and then Stu Kreisman, who you've talked to, and Chris Clues came aboard, and, and it was terrific to get their help. And uh, and then they were around, I think, in a, one more year there, and then came back for the last several years of the show. I left after season six. I was I was out of gas on Night Court. I just didn't, didn't have any left in the tank for that show, but uh, I really enjoyed working on it and uh, had a, a good collaboration with, with Riney because we've been together, you know, a long time. By the way, the first, here's another inside story that 
after the first episode aired, we got a uh, a five-page letter from some guy in New York who was an attorney telling us how wrong we had gotten everything and we were making a travesty of the justice system and all this stuff. And uh, so I, with Riney's permission, I wrote up a, a boilerplate letter that's sort of that... Thank you. We we appreciate your input, and we will share this with them. We will certainly take all this into consideration and so forth. And I and I gave it to Riney's secretary with a handwritten note, uh, paperclip to it, and I said, "Leave this. Put this in the envelope, but leave this paperclip to the letter." And and it said, "Judy, send this guy the standard crackpot letter." <laughs> So that when that guy got a response from us, he knew what we thought. But yeah, I mean, legally, let's face it, that, you know. It's, it's not why you're watching it. Huh? It's not why you're watching it, first of all. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and there were a lot of flaws in the legal process. I don't think we had a technical advisor on, uh, on night court. I don't remember one. Um, so probably a lot of it wasn't wrong, but I mean, wasn't right. But uh, there was, it was a movie called Night Shift that was directed by Ron Howard. I think it Mm -hmm. might've been his first feature. And there was a scene in that where they went to a night court for some reason. And I don't know, I, but I'm, I've wondered, and Ryan is no longer living, but I've wondered if that sort of was the inspiration, you know, it was, the general idea of it anyway. And, and when we were starting out, what we had in mind was kind of, you know how in the middle of the night you, you kind of, things can get surreal, you're tired, right. and you're kind of like, wait, did that happen? Or did, and we played that. And there were times that we were way over the line, I'm sure. But that was the kind of, why it mattered that it was night court and not a day court was just, this isn't the daily routine of nine to five people. This is, you know, when other, when the rest of the world is asleep, here's what's going on. kind of. Right. And season one had a lot of displacement with characters and like you didn't have Mac, you had uh, Lana. I don't, I did. I don't think, yeah, right. Uh, Lana was um, an actress named Karen Austin, and um, she didn't make it all the way to the end of the season. Right. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what all her issues were. Um, yeah, she she has a reason. She has a reason that she gives, but I just don't think she. I think she was supposed to be the uh, Harry's love interest, but it didn't work. Yeah, there was that. Um, and, and she got a little aggressive um, to the extent of uh, uh, a couple of people got physically, um, I don't want to say attacked, but, you know, kind of way past what's appropriate. And um, um, so, so she right. was... I think she might have done nine or so episodes that first season. 
And then uh, Paula Kelly, who got nominated for an Emmy, and then she was let go. Yeah, I really don't know what that was about. Um, Paula Kelly uh, one time told me at lunch that uh, she was the first person to do frontal, full frontal nudity in Playboy. And I, I don't know. I haven't looked that up. <laughs> but uh, uh, that's one of those things, Ian, you can imagine if somebody says something right. like that to you. Uh, what's the appropriate response, you know? Good for uh, you. <laughs> yeah. Well, wait, I thought that was me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, again, I kind of wonder if there may have been some... Um, some ill will uh, or some tension with other members of the cast, but also uh, Riney was looking, I, I, I don't remember exactly at what point he was hoping that he was going to be able to get Marky. That's what, that's what Stuart uh, Christman said. He said he wanted Marky post and she couldn't get out of the fall guy. So they brought on Ellen Foley, but she was basically dead man walking. Yeah. And you also had Deborah Harmon on for an episode. Yeah, I don't. Boy, I, you don't. Yeah, that's the one where uh, James Cromwell left the uh, mental institution. Oh. Okay. Uh, okay. Just all right. And then, and then finally, because she did an episode, uh, Marky Post, Daddy for the Defense, in the second oh, season, yeah. and then. They wouldn't let her out of um, Fall Guy, so she had to wait to the third season to come back. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Riney had had really thought that Marky was going to be a good fit for the for that, and it had proved to be true. I mean, yeah, she really she really did add a lot to the show. I think that's the one person I've been trying to get on, and I have no no uh, no luck. But anyway. Um, you did wrote an episode called "Nuts About Harry" with Michael Richards. Yeah, yeah, he he's a funny guy. He was um, again that I want to say that that might have been. I think "Nuts About Harry" might have been an idea that we thought about for um, uh, Park Place mm-hmm. and. Uh, and that it, maybe the you know the general idea of that um, I kind of have a feeling that that you know very often there are ideas like that that especially you know Brian and I have worked on a lot of stuff together and the you know uh, I don't know maybe it's not gonna um, it's not gonna fit but we would bring it up another time I kind of have a vague feeling that that was something that was a leftover idea, but it, you know, obviously had to be adapted to right to uh, that court. And I noticed that a lot of your episodes focus on the uh, character who I think is a great character who's not as well thought of as the other ones. You did a lot of Mac episodes. Yeah, I really like Charlie Robinson, and I, I liked his uh, style. Um, Underrated was the I, word I was looking for, yes. 
Yeah, uh, he. Uh, one of the things that characterized, or that that was that character. What we did a lot was him kind of needling Dan, because um, as you know, Dan was pretty full of himself, and it was uh, he had a different relationship. Mac had a different relationship with Dan than any of the others. Uh, Dan infuriated Christine and. Uh, you know, uh, Mac was able to just. I think. I think I did an episode where Mac. Um, oh, oh! It was. Uh, I think it might have been safe. Where, oh, I was going to ask you about that one. That's that's what that's my favorite episode of Night Court you wrote. But go, you can go ahead now. Well, we can wait if you want. Uh, um, but. Yeah, Charlie Robinson was a, a terrific addition to the cast and a very stable influence, a very likable guy. And, uh, um, he, you know, that's on a winning team, you need, you need, um, strong pitching and you need somebody who can hit home runs, but you also need guys who can hit line drives and steal bases and stuff. And, uh, Charlie was uh, definitely a good team player. Mm. Now, in 1985, you wrote an episode of Cheers called Teacher's Pet. Now, yeah. when I bring, when I, there's a Cheers fan site on, on Facebook, and I was telling them that I was going to interview you, I was like, he wrote the episode Teacher's Pet. And of course, Albania, Albania, yeah. you bored. How many times have you heard that in your life? Uh, quite a few, and sadly, that actually was a contribution of Sam Simon, who wrote for, as you know, Simpsons mm -hmm. and a whole lot of other stuff. And that was uh, that was a contribution of Sam in the room, um, and it, during a rewrite. And what I I had. Uh, for those who don't know, the, the idea of the episode was um, uh, Sam has not, not Sam Simon, <laughs> Sam Malone, uh, didn't finish high school and he's going to go back and get his remaining units so that he can get his uh, diploma and coach admits to the same thing. And so he's going to go back to school too. And Diane is encouraging coach to to do this is wonderful coach I'm so glad you're going to do this and coach is a little apprehensive about about it and Diane says something to him along the lines of uh, oh, oh I think let's see I think coach says something like uh, uh, yeah maybe maybe you can be my crutch or something like that and, and Diane says you don't need a crutch uh, uh, I'm going to give you a mnemonic device and coach says that he's got he's got a mnemonic device at home, but he doesn't like to wear it in public <laughs> or something along those lines. And the way I had written that what became Albania uh, was a, a different, same general idea, but it was the rivers of South America that coach had somehow figured out a. A, 
mnemonic. And a mnemonic device to be able to remember the rivers of South America. And what Sam came up with is way better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to mention the, in the next season, um, 8687 you actually had an episode of Cheers Diamond Sam where Di- uh, Sam buys uh Shelly Long uh an engagement ring and first he buys the cheap one and then he buys the real one and then yeah. after it aired a Nightcore episode called Baby Talk that you wrote so you had the Cheers Nightcore hour both written by you yeah and that's impressive, Ian, that you caught that one. Yeah, those two eras aired back to back. Um, and um, <laughs> I don't think Riney knew that my Night Court episode was going to air after the Cheers episode. And, uh, and after the closing credits of Night Court, the phone rang and it was Riney and he said, did you write the Cosby episode too? <laughs> For me, um, I was 9, 10, 11 during, you know, 86 to 88 around there. That Thursday night, I, met, I got to stay up to 10 so I can watch Night Court. So I can watch Night Court. Yeah. Cool. So, you know, it was my favorite show. My parents were like, all right. Every other night, I had to go to bed like 9, 9.30. But I got to stay up to 10 to watch Night Court every night. And I thought right. that Dan was the greatest guy in the world because look at all these pretty girls he's always walking around with. I totally did not yeah. get that. Yeah. Some of the things that Dan said and did would obviously get him fired today. Right. Uh, but, yeah, again, it's like like I was saying earlier, some of the stuff that you wrote 35, 40 years ago, you look back on now and go, oh, 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, but he he was Dan was uh, definitely a funny character. And one of the things that was terrific about John LaRocchetta as an actor was he didn't care if he, he, he didn't mind being the bad guy. A lot of times actors will, you know, say, right. gosh, you're making me look bad or I'm, my character seems so unlikable or something like that. And he knew that his character was, that the appeal of his character was that he was kind of an unlikable guy. But, uh, and he, he reveled in it. He, he pulled it off. He was great. Yeah, I mean, I told uh, the story to, to uh, Larry Strother. The episode, uh, A Day in the Life, the second one, where they they have a contest for to save an orphanage. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a scene where at the end, Harry Anderson is is um, arm wrestling uh, Pat Corley, and Marky Post gets behind him and flashes him. And my dad played a trick on me because he was watching in his room. And he was like, oh, no, in your room, you're facing the south of the house. You could only see what the camera was doing over there. I was watching on the east, so I got to see I got to see her flashing. The, so then I waited till the summer reruns. And I went into my parents' bedroom, and I was like, you lied to me. Yeah, that's disappointing. <laughs> uh, that's great. But, yeah. Marky Post was like a big, I'm sure, a big crush to a lot of people my age and older in, in the 80s. But then you wrote one of my favorite, my favorite episode you wrote is Safe. Because it's got yeah. a double plot that's great. Yeah, that was, um, um, and again, that's one of those that people can look at and say, well, yeah, yeah where... You know, there are flaws in Harry being stuck in a safe. And and I did think about things like, okay, so what's the light source? And I think it seems to me I had him hang up a, he had a little light, pen light. Yeah, he had one of those yeah. little things. And he had, he had yeah. gum. Yeah. Um, and that was just one of those um you know, you got to think about that kind of stuff. And I, as I recall, I, I think we shot the the stuff where he's inside the safe without the audience. I think we, I'm pretty sure we played that stuff back for the audience because it was just going to be too technically challenging to try to, you know, get Harry stuffed in the safe and then, okay, now we got to get him out and, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm pretty sure that's that's how we did it. And the um, the other plot line was the yeah I think you mentioned man selling his soul to the devil. Yep. Which, um, that summer when we or late spring when we were starting to figure out episodes. Uh, we were in the room and, and we were pitching and we were just not getting very far and different guys were pitching stuff, different people. I mean, uh, and then we were just felt like we were kind of spinning our wheels 
and Ryan said to me, what do you got? And I said, um, Dan sells his soul to the devil. <laughs> and Ryan said, sounds good. Let's go home. <laughs> so that's, we didn't have it figured out, but he just knew somehow that, you know, we can figure that one out. So we went home and then figured it out. I don't know, the next day or something like that. But, uh, yeah, it was a, because of the, the technical aspects of shooting that um, safe thing, I think I seem to remember that the script, in, just in terms of page count, was longer than a lot of them. Mm. But uh, a guy named Tim Steele, who was our line producer, directed that episode. Mm. Um, and I think part of the reason Ryan probably gave that one to Tim is that Tim had a real solid understanding of, you know, technically what needed to be, you know, to be done. Right. And the next season, um, you did three more night courts you wrote. And of course, you know, you had all the responsibilities on the show as well, but a great cheers episode, swear to God, where Sam finds out he might be the father of a child. And he prays to God that if he's not, he will be absent for three months. And there's a line in there. See, men are men love to quote TV shows. I had a friend who was like, "If it wasn't for television, I would have no vocabulary." (laughs) And one of the things we always would say at my at where I'm a New York City teacher, if one of the if one of our kids or if one of our colleagues says something stupid, we say whatever. Let's say the guy's name is Tom. The guy's name is Tom, but I can't remember his last name. I would be like, (laughs) I say, um. Hello in there, Tom. Tell me, what color is the sky in your world? Yeah. <laughs> That's such a yeah, great line. That, that was, uh, let's see, Frazier, I think, said that, right? Yep, Frazier uh, says it to Cliff. And then, sorry? yeah, Frazier says that to Cliff. Yeah. And you also created the character of the priest that um, Sam goes to for guidance, which he did four more times. Yeah, uh, I forget. I forget that actor's name. Darn it! Um, I remember him being very good. Um, shoot, but yeah, that the the genesis of that episode. Um, you know, that was during a time, Ian, when when AIDS was raging, and there was a lot of concern and, and, a, and controversy about all of that. And I went in one day and met with the Charles brothers. Uh, and I said, you know, we've been doing all this stuff where Sam is, is, you know, promiscuous. And so we've never really dealt with any consequences. Mm. And what if we do something like that? And initially, I was talking about the possibility of, you know, bringing Mm. AIDS into it. Um, And I think the decision was made that that it was a risk of seeming like we were not taking it seriously, you know, the, the AIDS epidemic at that time. 
so it kind of veered off into this other direction, but it still conveyed the idea that, hey, you know, if you're having unprotected sex, there are consequences. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think, as I recall, that turned out to be a pretty good episode. Yeah, I like that one a lot. I like when the priest says, you know, Sam, the Catholic Church does promote abstinence for unmarried uh, members. And then there's like a pause and Ted Danza goes, oh, oh, you were serious about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, and I, I uh, Carla is, uh, I, as I recall, kind of involved in that yeah. a little bit too. And, uh, you know, supposedly she's urging him to to take this all seriously and at that point I think her character had five kids <laughs> right. by by different parents so she had a, a a life experience perspective I guess you could say <laughs> and um, so 1991-92 season you did a show called Stand By Your Man with Rosie O'Donnell and Melissa Gilbert yeah um, that show lasted, I want to say six episodes. Um, the pilot was shot three times, um, because the character played by Melissa Gilbert was played by different actresses in take one and take two of the, so that, that was very unusual that that pilot got shot three times. Um, the producers were the creators were uh, Neil Thompson and uh, Nancy Steen. Oh, from Night Court. Were, yeah, I knew them from Night Court, and uh, uh, I think I think Rosie O'Donnell had you know some strong opinions about how the the actress who was playing her friend would uh, would. Uh, Play, you know, play with her, and uh, and so I think that's why, because because there were two other actresses that I, I thought both of them were quite good. Mm. Not to say Melissa Gilbert wasn't good, but I don't know. I, I wasn't part of that decision making process. But it was very unusual to shoot a pilot three times. All right, I have one question though that Larry Strother asked me to ask you. He asked me to ask. Oh, yeah. Do this question too, but Stu didn't know the answer. His episode comes out tomorrow, by the way, uh, and it, it's great. And I think you're going to beat him on time, by the way. He had, his was an hour fifty, but um, this is this is the question: Do you remember the Reinhold Weege Harry Anderson, um, oh, what's it, Steve Landisberg? Were you there for that? Or was it never happened? I, I'm not sure what he's referring okay. to. What Larry Strother said when he got there, he heard that in the first or second season, Harry Anderson was complaining a lot to Reinhold Weege. So Reinhold said, let's just go into my office and discuss this. So they go sit in the office, and Harry starts complaining, and Reinhold picks up his telephone and says, could you get me Steve Landisberg on the phone? Hi, Steve. This is Reinhold. Um, yes, um, we need a new Harry Stone. Can you... Now, they don't know if this is... Now, Larry and Gary Murphy don't know this if this is 
a myth or this actually happened? To Christman says, I don't know. The only person who would know is you. Well, uh, I, I have a slightly different version of it. Okay. There was, um, I, I don't know that it, it, it's conceivable that that happened, but uh, it was, uh, it wasn't season one or two, by, by about season four, and that might have been around the time that Larry Strother joined the team, um, there was, uh, Harry's agent was um, trying to renegotiate a new deal for Harry. And so it was beginning to look doubtful that, I mean, we were, are we going to, are we going to, go into production are we going to have harry and uh and Riney's idea was to um if 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 harry fell through that steve landisberg would be the guy uh or at least would be approached now it's possible that what was described may have happened i i kind of think it's probably myth but uh but yeah, there was there was some conversation about if they couldn't close a deal with Harry for additional seasons that uh, they bring Steve Landisberg in, which would have been a very different. Uh, yes, because Steve is so laconic that you know Harry was that sort of high energy, amiable guy, and Steve was more cerebral and all that. So it would have. I don't think it would have had the same tone. I think we would have had to make quite a bit of adjustment. Happily, that didn't happen, and Harry signed on for additional seasons. And I think what Night Court went like nine years, right? Right. So is that why that was that the year that they did the four part Her Honor, just in case? You know, uh, I guess so. I, I. Huh. I don't know the answer to that. All right. That was the fourth season. That's why I was like, oh, maybe that's why they did that. Yeah, the fourth season was I I came I had uh I had been there every day season one and then season two I wrote uh, a couple of scripts, but I was also working on other things. Season three, I don't know that I had one on because I was I was doing a made-for-TV movie at CBS that wound up never getting made, but ate up a bunch of my time. Um, and then season four, I got this offer to come back, and Ryan, he said, you only have to come in one day a week or something like that, and they paid me a very nice salary. And I, I wound up choosing to go in a couple of days a week, um, but, uh, and, you know, other times if it was all hands on deck, I'd go in too. But uh, I didn't have to be there full time, which was really a nice uh, arrangement to have. As I said earlier, I, I after a year on Benson, I decided I'm never going to be a producer mm. again. And, uh, and I had my agent always make my deals when I wrote pilots and stuff. Um, if, you know, I'll... Uh, I'll write this, but I'm not going to produce it, which was made for a real tough sale, of course. 
I think I only had a producer in my title one other time, and that was towards the end when I was working on uh, uh, Cosby. Right, yes. Yeah. Um, you did a show for two years, which I think was pretty funny when I watched it, Nurses. And the reason I liked it is I like David Rashi. Might have had a different opinion um, if I met him. Um, it was uh, he, he. Yes, he was funny, um, but again, in terms of um, blending in with that particular cast, I think there was a lot of uh, a lot of uh, tension, and you know, I don't. I'm not saying. He's terrible. You should never work with him. But in in that in that situation, um, it it they, uh, nurses went I think four seasons, and I came in about season three. That was another uh, with Thomas Harris production. And right. I it was I think Paul and Tony had basically pitched it to the network. At that time, networks would have people under actors under contract and look for things for them to do. And I think Paul and Tony pitched it on with the idea that we'll, you know, who you got, we'll find a thing to put them all together. And so several people came in and then throughout the run of the show, there was a lot of um, changing Mm. of members of the cast. And it just, it never found its way into a smooth you know, where they were all getting along. And some of that may have been misunderstandings about, well, my agent told me I was going to be the star of this show. I mean, I don't know. That's speculation. But I'm, I'm going to have uh, the next episode I'm having on um, Jim Stahl and Jim Fisher. And they've known him for f- 40 years and worked on Sledgehammer with him. So I, I'm not going to say what you said, but I'm just going to, I'm just saying. With David Rashi? Yeah. From second, they were yeah. with him from Second City from 1972. Yeah, yeah, and and like I said, he's he's funny. Yeah. And, but but I think in that specific show, that probably wasn't the happiest time of his life. Gotcha. All right, and uh, what was Lonnie Anderson like to work with? Or the same thing? Larry Anderson. Lonnie. Oh, Lonnie Anderson. Um, yeah, she. Um, I think she got along better than, and again, I don't know that she and David Rashi got along very well, but, um, yeah, that was yet another one of those, okay, well, it didn't work to have this, let's, let's, hey, let's put her in here. Um, and I liked her fine, you know, I, I, she had been on uh, WKRP, I yes. think. Um, and um, I, uh, it, it's. Um, she was good on that. Yeah, she had some comedy experience and kind of knew where the jokes were, and uh, and attractive and all of that. Um, but I, I just, it, it, that was. Uh, one of those shows it was kind of hard to come up with stuff that that 
it worked well. Uh, I remember, I'm not going to tell you which cast member it was, and it's not anybody that we've talked about yet, but there was this one actor who just had a terrible time remembering lines, and even when he, he remembered his lines, they didn't land very well. And I, I said to one of the producers, I don't know what this guy is going to do after this show is over. And he said, paper or plastic? <laughs> <laughs> like he was going to go to work in a supermarket as a bagger. But uh, anyway. But one other, one, one other thing about that show. Uh, it was the first te American television appearance of Selma Hayek. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think there was, uh, she came in with, uh, you know, kind of expectations of, uh, yeah, um, this one's all about me. Um, I, I, I guess I'm, what I'm conveying to you is that uh, if you ask me about my very best experience in television, I would probably say nurses. No, okay. And what would your, your best would be MASH or Cheers or? I had a really good time working on Dave's World. Um, okay. I had a great time working on Night Court. I really enjoyed and admired the people I worked with on uh, Cheers, very much so. Um, um, Let's see. Mash, I was never really around the cast. Right. I was only in the in the writers' room, um, but I, you know, had a good experience with those those folks. Did you um, get the uh, rap pin from Cheers from the last episode? No. Apparently, there's no, a I pin going around, and uh, not going around, but they gave to everybody. And I read a story about one of the writers who gave their pinup to somebody who uh, whose brother just died and she was feeling upset and she loved cheers. So I just huh. read that story. Yeah. You, did, you yeah. did a show with two people who are very experienced at comedy. The boys are back with uh, Barney Miller himself, Hal Linden and uh, Suzanne Plachette. Yeah. And uh, that was, um, uh, Gary Murphy, who had been Larry Strother's partner for a while, partnered up with uh, Neil Thompson. Again, these were those guys I think met on uh, Night Court, and um, um, I think my recollection is that that show was about um, a guy and his wife his new wife and, and his kids or maybe their kids move back in. So it changes their relationship because, you know, what they, what their expectation was, was, you know, heading toward retirement or something like that with, uh, just the two of them. And, and then, the suddenly they're, Active parents again. I think that was the general idea. Yeah, I saw the pilot the other day on YouTube. And it begins with Hal Linden telling Suzanne Plachette they could have sex naked uh, anywhere in the house, which was, you know, not really something you want to think about. <laughs> yeah. 
You did the special on affectionate look at fatherhood. Do you remember that? Yeah, I sure do. Um, it was Ted Danson's production company had a deal with NBC, and um, and they uh, I forget. I guess they asked me to write it, and it was uh, I was working with Ted's production company, and then. And basically, it was, um, I think it was an hour, or maybe, might have been 90 minutes, but it was probably an hour. Um, and it was sort of vignettes. And it was all um, actors and actresses who were mostly actors and actresses who were uh, on NBC shows. Okay. There were a couple of the people. A couple of the people from uh, Nurses, in fact, were in that episode. Um, John Mahoney, was, who played Mark mm. Montreasier, was in it, um, and so on. And um, it was about the experience of becoming a father. It wasn't being a father until, you know, your kids are graduating from high school. It was like the first year of fatherhood sort of and some of it was based on you know obviously based on personal experiences with mine and, and um it was uh it got a pretty nice review and variety um but nbc in their strange made a very strange decision it aired Is that saturday night before mother's day they did a show about fathers the night before Mother's Day. Mm. <laughs> so, obviously, the, the ratings were not good. But uh, Kelsey Grammer was the host and uh, and kind of did these little connective tissue um, speeches. Right. And, uh, and, then, and then it would go into... Uh, a scene where, you know, somebody was in a panic calling the hospital or whatever, you know. Right. And then you moved on to Dave's World where you get to work with Harry Anderson again, which is great. That's one guy I always wanted to meet. I never got the chance. I was hoping he'd write like a memoir and then he'd go do a book tour and then I could meet him, but it didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, he, uh, as you know, passed on a couple of years ago and yeah. had a stroke. Um, and he had, uh, during Dave's World, he had, after Night Court, he moved to uh, Issaquah, Washington, which is in the Seattle area. And so he would fly down in every, every week. He would fly down, I want to say, on uh, Monday night. And he stayed at a hotel in Studio City called Sportsman's Lodge. And so we we do a four day production week. And then on Saturday morning he would fly home. So he would be home with his wife and kids Saturday through Monday and then be living in a hotel. So he had he, I don't know how many frequent flyers Miles mm-hmm. he must have had, but oh crap, he was flying all the time. Um, but that was a 
congenial mm. group of people. The actors all got along pretty well. Shadow Steven seems like he's a nice guy. Meshach Taylor seemed like he was a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. J.C. Wendell, Patrick Warburton, um, Delane Matthews. That was the yeah. wife's name. I couldn't remember. And then in an episode, you get to work with Henry Winkler. Yeah. I think Henry directed an episode I wrote, I think. Um, oh, that's why I wrote down. He, the Green-Eyed Monster. Yeah, which it was something to do with Envy. I don't remember much about it, but um, but I do remember that Henry came out and, you know, got applause from the audience. And what must have been something that he got very tired of doing, but he was very gracious for the audience. He did a little Fonzie shtick. Mm. And they went crazy for that, you know. After all the years, I mean, you gotta believe that every time he went out in public, some stranger would say, "Hey, Fonz, how are you?" You know, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I remember him coming out that night. He was a very nice guy. Uh, I forgot who I was talking to. He, they said he loves doing that. He loves just walking up to people. And, oh no, it was a comedian friend of mine, and he was he was on the red carpet for. Uh, uh, the Water Boy with uh, Adam Sandler, and oh yeah, and uh, he comes out and he's like, oh, so what college are you going to? And he's at like, Queens College. Oh, Queens! I talked for him for a half an hour. He's just a genuine, like, nice person. Yeah, really good guy. And that's I'm gonna buy one of those books with the kid with the uh, with the reading with the reading disorder, so I could get his autograph. So I got. He has like he has dyslexia, and he wrote children's books about a character with dyslexia. Huh. Harry had something like that too. I I remember we were always impressed with how Harry would come in and he had his lines locked in pretty much better than anybody. And I found out that you know he he had some reading issues, and so he felt like he needed to do that to. So that he wasn't stumbling over words. It's one episode of Cosby that I liked as a teacher is the superstar episode where they, what if teachers were paid like athletes? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that wound up being, uh, uh, supersized. It turned into a 60 minute thing. There was a, a part two. And, um, uh, I was living in LA, but commuting back and forth to, uh, to New York, but they'd have me back there. I'd be back maybe a couple or three weeks at a time, and then I'd come back to L.A., and then, you know, like back and forth like that. And there was a writer that I had worked with on uh, Davis World and also on Grace Under Fire, um, uh, Nick LaRose, and he and I split it up. And, I, he, you know, I'll write this scene, you write that scene, and then we'd get together and kind of you know, lash it together. And, uh, yeah, that, that episode I thought turned out pretty well. Um, that was the, the last time I ever submitted anything for an Emmy for Emmy consideration. And mm. I, I only, you know, that the way it works for a writer is you got to submit it. They don't, somebody doesn't say, Okay, we like like this. You have to you have to put it in, and then people there's a preliminary vote and all that 
and uh, and I had when I didn't even get a nomination for Hash, I thought, well, I'm not gonna. I might have done one or two more after that. I forget, but through the '80s and '90s, I didn't uh, until uh, Nick felt pretty good about it. And because I was a member of the Academy, it didn't cost money to to uh, submit. So mm. I did submit that. That was the last time I submitted an episode. And, uh, you know, it, it got nothing. But but I'm just, that was just uh, my way of saying, yeah, I, I was pretty proud of how that one turned out. Well, I saw it once 21 years ago, and I remember it. Wow. Great. So, and then you did uh, four years on Frasier as a creative consultant. Yeah, and that happened as there, there had been a, a change in showrunners. Um, and I think um, they were looking to sort of stabilize the writing room a little bit just because there'd been some some changes made. And, and um, I think Pete Casey and, uh, and David... Lee and David Angel had had a conversation with uh, Les Charles about um, you know who to who to lean on, and mm. Les had recommended that I could be helpful to them, especially in pitching stories. Um, and so they hired me kind of provisionally, and for a, I don't know, I forget X number of episodes, maybe it was eight or something, and then I. I wound up turning into the rest of the run of the show, like mm -hmm. four more seasons. And I, I really enjoyed working on Frasier. Did Kelsey Grammer, was he, was he different on Frasier? I know the character, I'm saying backstage, different on Frasier than he was on Cheers, or was he pretty much the same guy? Kelsey? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think he was pretty much the same guy. He I, actually... In many respects, better because um, in the early days of Cheers, you know, he had had some substance issues too, mm -hmm. and um, so there was some stuff that he he needed to work through, and and I believe the cast of Cheers was helpful with him on that, and I think maybe that also carried over on the Frasier that there were times when um, he was getting support from, you know, the, the people working on that show. And I, you know, I, I should be careful about making too many suppositions about that. Cause that's pretty personal stuff, but, but yeah, I know he was, I know that in, on cheers, there were some pretty big concerns and then, I've read his biography. He talks about it, so. Yeah, okay. All right, so hold on. So in 2004, you retired? Yeah, yep. And you went to become a traveler and a blogger. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that was a, a big factor in that, David Angel, who worked, I worked with on Cheers, but we were also very close friends and his, his wife and my wife played bad golf once a week. Um, and they had been, um, I, I know, uh, 
and they had been on the Cape working on their dream home, and and then 9-11 happened, and, and we lost them. And so that made me, made us, my wife and I, feel like, you know, let's, let's try to realize what we hope our retirement can be because Dave and Lynn didn't get to. And um, so, yeah, when Fraser ended, it seemed like a, a natural time to call it a career. And, uh, and uh, we'd always wanted to live at the beach. And so we sold a house that we'd lived in for, I don't know, 20 something years and, and moved, moved to the beach. And it's uh, so a lot more, um, sedentary and there are certainly things that I miss like hanging out with writer pals to the extent that we used that I was able to do that for a long time and you know it's it's uh, a bit of a trade-off but uh yeah so we we moved up here and then it was my daughter and her husband who decided I needed to be a blogger um for Christmas they had one year they had uh set up um, formatted it and all that stuff and uh, and said here you go dad fill it up and so I did that for a number of years and then finally reached the point where I thought okay I think I've yeah, I've said what I have to say there's still so, comments on there from last year so it's still being yeah, read people are finding their way to it and there's some of this stuff and it, as you if you've seen it it's uh it's some pretty random stuff. I, I uh, would write about travel and sports and just things that I like. And I wrote some stuff about TV writing and uh, just history and art, anything pretty much that interested me. So, so you know, it's it's all over the place. But, but yeah, it is kind of flattering that there are still people who are finding their way there. And when did, you be, when did you become a member of the House of Representatives? Oh, you don't know there's a representative Tom Reader? No, is it really? Yeah. I'll be darned. And when I went to start doing research for you, his name came up. Wow. What state? I can look for it right now. Hold on. Oh, it's okay. No, no, it's take two seconds. Google. Tom Reader, 19. Uh... He is Florida. He's a, Rep a Republican uh, representative, District Fifty Eight. Uh, Cas he's from Casper, Wyoming. But oh, Casper, Wyoming is where he is the um, representative. Oh, be I had no idea. Oh, okay. And also, a couple, a couple of other questions. So, your daughter is a writer. And that's got to make you very proud. Yeah, yeah. Um, she writes about a lot of things, but primarily about uh, dog-related things. Um, and um, some of it's science-related. You know, she writes for uh, veterinary publications and stuff like that, but also for consumer publications about, um, you know, 
training for your dogs, and she writes articles about um, um, adopting pets and all that stuff. She's written articles about cats and stuff. She, she's also written for, I don't know, Ladies Home Journal and other publications, too, but she's primarily a print writer right. and a journalist. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, we're... The last time... Um, uh, last time I got to travel anywhere was uh, last uh, where we were in New York. Well, technically Secaucus, but uh, New Jersey. But uh, uh, for the Dog Writers uh, Association meeting, she she for I don't know a couple of years or so I think was president of the Dog Writers Association. Mm. Yeah. And then handed that off. Who knew there was such a thing, right? But they. They have this, the Dog Writers Association has their annual gathering in uh, conjunction. They have it at the same time as the Westminster Kennel Club dog show. Gotcha. So, so that's why, you know, as I'm sure you'd agree, January, February, not a great time to be in New York City just as a tourist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it gets a little chilly there, but... Uh, that's that's why they do it at that at that time of year. And uh, also, the other thing I forgot to mention: your episode of uh, Cheers, uh, Teacher's Pet, was the last one with Nicholas Colonsato. Yeah, I had known Nick. We had known Nick before because, and here's that sort of small world thing. Uh, his, his Bob Caleri was a friend of Nick's, and I'm not sure how their friendship happened. So I met. Nick, uh, before um, before he played coach on Cheers, mm. um, and um, he was a boxing fan. We'd get together sometimes. Well, in fact, he was in Raging Bull. Yeah, and he directed a lot of uh, dramas. Mm. I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't. I was surprised when I didn't really know that he had such a great you know that he had good comedy chops and I was a little surprised when uh, I when he showed up on Cheers um, but yeah very uh, very nice man and uh, as I said I, I had gotten to know him uh, before before yeah well thank you for talking with me and um Good luck in everything else you do in the future and your family and everything else. Well, thank you, Ian, and uh, give me a heads up when this thing's going to be on, would you? I will do that.